Hey everybody, James Intercasso from the Roundtable here. I just wanted to let you know about a little thing we're doing before we start this week's podcast. On Sunday, March 29th at 7.30pm Eastern, John Fisher is going to Dungeon Master, Roundtable regulars Allison Rossi, Rudy Basso, Alex Basso, and myself in a massive battle of the elements. We're going to be using the new D&D Unearthed Arcana battle system rules, and we're going to be playing characters using the Elemental Evil Player's Companion and the Unearthed Arcana Eberron races. This battle is going to be live streamed over Twitch at the Tome Show's Twitch channel. That's www.twitch.tv slash the underscore tome underscore show. That's Sunday, March 29th at 7.30 p.m. Eastern. After we live stream the battle, we will release the audio as a podcast on the Tome Show's feed, so keep checking thetomeshow.com for that. You'll also be able to view the video even after the live stream over at the Tome Show's Twitch channel. Then we're going to do a roundtable podcast where we talk about all of the different elements, specifically the battle system, but also the Unearthed Arcana Eberron race that we're using of Warforged and the Elemental Evil Players Companion races. So look forward to all of that. You can get updates over at thetomeshow.com. All the information is linked there for you. Thank you. Hello, welcome to the D&D Roundtable presented by The Tome Show. I'm your host, James Intercasso. Please use the affiliate links on thetomeshow.com whenever you shop on Amazon or D&D Classics to help support the show. Just go to thetomeshow.com, click on the links in the show notes for this episode or any other, and then shop as you normally would. I'd also like to thank our sponsor for this podcast, noblenight.com. They're a brick-and-mortar game store that also exists online. They have any edition of any game, including out-of-print products. With Noble Knight, you can even sell your old gaming products you aren't using anymore. Let's hear a quick word from them. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, even Saturday, Noble Knight is a brick-and-mortar game store. Support small businesses that also exists. Online! Open 24-7 on the web! They have D&D and other cool RPGs! Any edition! Any game! Even... Out of print products! And at a discounted price! That's out of control! Have a bunch of old game products collecting dust? Dangerous allergens! Noble Knight will buy the old stuff you aren't using anymore! Looking at you, Indiana Jones RPG! So go to NobleKnight.com and get buying and sell it! Take back your life! And tell them the Tone Show sent you! Today, we're talking about the battle system rules and a few vague tweets about the future of D&D from Chris Perkins. But let's meet our panel and kick things off with our get-to-know-you question. What's your favorite fantasy medal? Allison Rossi, we'll start with you. Okay, so starting with me, I'm probably going to say Cold Iron or Cold Steel, whichever one you want to refer to it as. Um, ever since there was a battle that my one group went against a bunch of Fae, uh, where we used it to take out some red caps, I've been a little bit uh, partial to it. I like it, so that's that's my favorite as of right now. Yes, yeah, that's a great choice. Always good when you're going into the Feywild, or I think it works against some fiends as well. It's a great medal, great medal. Uh, Rudy Basso, what is your favorite fantasy medal? 
I'm going to go with unobtainium because it is ridiculous sounding. <laughs> uh, what is unobtainium from? What's that James Cameron movie with the blue people? Avatar. Avatar. Avatar, thank you. Yeah. Well, I guess it is hard to obtain. Um, <laughs> oh, you'd be surprised. <laughs> Alex Basso, what is your favorite fantasy metal? My favorite fantasy metal is Titan Steel from World of Warcraft, the Wrath of the Lich King expansion. Why? Because it made me filthy rich. It had a two-day cooldown to make one bar of it. I would do it every time it was up and sell it for, for tons of gold. All right, guys, let's move on to something a little more serious. The Battle System Rules. They were published as part of the Unearthed Arcana series. Um, Mike Merles put them out in the beginning of March. The Battle System Rules are made for large-scale battles. They assume miniatures and a grid. There's a lot of different rules in here. We are going to take a lot of time and break this down right now and talk about what we like, what we don't like, that kind of thing. But essentially, the way the system works in a very, very small nutshell, you should read all nine pages of this thing if you have a chance. We'll link it in the show notes at thetomeshow.com. PCs can control not just themselves, but also various uh, units of creatures. Units are made up of stands. Stands are like one miniature, which represents ten people, which then can be organized into units however large or, or small that they want them to be. Uh, essentially, part of the gimmick is you want to be sure that you always are connected to another allied stand. You know, you need to be close or part of the unit that actually makes them up. Otherwise, bad things happen. If you are isolated, which means you don't have any allies around you, uh, you end up with disadvantage on your attacks and all attacks against you have advantage and deal double damage. It is bad news. Um, there's a lot of other rules here. They have rules for other solo creatures. So the DM obviously controls some other units and stands and can bring in, you know, a purple worm or a dragon or whatever. And that can count as a solo creature, a powerful NPC or monster that is just going to town, tearing things up. And then uh, a lot of the system is sort of like D&D combat, but it's obviously more abstract, right? So one stand has the same amount of hit points and AC and statistics as one of the creatures that makes up the stand. Overall, what did you guys think of this system? And I'm going to start with the most tactically minded person I know, Alex Basso. So these rules, first off, definitely a huge improvement from uh, the rules we saw back in, was that like the last, let's say, beta test back in? Or it was an article I remember months ago, which yeah. were like very, very basic. Yeah, so yeah, these... and it wasn't even completely fleshed out. It was like kind of vague about what they were doing. Yeah, so I mean, those were I think supposed to be in like the, the DMG, or there was going to be in a book. I don't remember which one. So I'm happy they they you know took their time, uh, fleshed it out more. Uh, honestly, what I'm going to say after reading this twice, I really need to try it. Um, I really I love the idea of making these units that you split up into, you know, give them a role, give them skirmishers, give them regiments, and have them perform different functions on the battlefield. Um, you know, I love that, you know, the idea of formations. I love, like, Roman combat. That stuff's so awesome. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it kind of, in the isolation mechanics, kind of, like, um, mimic, you know, having a squad being flanked. Uh, it seems really cool. I don't get any idea of how big these battles scale. will actually be. Yeah, yeah the, the scale. scale. 
you know, units, they say a group of stands. I assume the minimum for a unit is two because uh, there isn't anything listed. Um, I mean, what is, what is, what they, what do they expect for a unit size? You know, are we going to have 10 stands, five stands? Mm-hmm. I, it's, you know, a little confusing. It's something I really, you know, it would be cool if they had some sort of example set up, but you know, they don't. So it's something I, I really need to get my hands on and give it a shot. But, um, I, I love, you know, the added rules, the commander stuff. Uh, and like I said, the, the skirmishers, the formations, that's all real nice. Yeah, it's funny you bring that up because one of the things I've noticed about this is there are no encounter building guidelines or rules or or even suggestions. There's not a sidebar anywhere. If you're playing with six PCs, those count as solos, but are they actually more powerful and what kind of creatures should go in stands versus how many people should you have on each side to make it a balanced encounter? But it seems like so much depends upon various objectives. You know, fights uh, don't end necessarily in total annihilation right there are you can create these different objectives that are worth victory points and at the end of a round you calculate the number of victory points and if somebody makes it to 10 victory points first you can assume the battle is over so i do think there's a lot of variability here and we've talked before on this show about how swingy the encounter building rules are for regular D combat I feel like these, there are no encounter building rules because the encounters are just so sort of like, oh, it could be really crazy. And, you know, there's other things they have advice about terrain and, and changing it up. It really does feel like a miniatures game, which is cool. Allison, what did you think of these rules overall? So I thought they were very interesting. Um, being relatively new to D&D, I have never actually been in kind of a large, large scale combat um, in play. So reading through it was very interesting. It seems a little bit complicated, your first look through it. But as you read into it more, it seems to make more sense, um, especially if you compare it to other games and the ideas of them like Warhammer 40k or even like civilization games, just how they work, um, how, you know, you know, five to ten people consist of, you know, they're a unit, they attack together, they move together, they have one set HP for all of them. So I think it's really interesting and I'm excited to to eventually use it in one of my games. Yeah, yeah, I am definitely excited to see how this would play out. And we are going to talk about that a little later because we will be live streaming a test of the battle system. Uh, yes. <laughs> frequent panelist John Fisher will be DMing and everyone else on this podcast, myself, Rudy, Alex, Allison, we will all be creating some PCs and it is going to be a blast. So uh, I'm looking for ways to uh, poke holes in it and see what we could do to test it out since this is just kind of beta. So that should be interesting. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's going to depend on, you know, the resources we have and what John prepares. So it'll be interesting. Rudy Basso, what do you think of these rules overall? I'm not sure. Uh, it definitely feels like war game light. Like you mentioned, VPs. That's a classic miniature war game kind of way to win, as opposed to just killing everybody. Uh, my big thing is, I think this is going to take a long time. Each stand attacks independently, mm-hmm. so if again, it's it all comes back to scale. Like I don't know how big a fight is. If there was like a point by system. Like skirmishers cost this much, regiment cost this much, based on size, maybe can be put into the equation. But I, I don't know. I'm I'm nervous about this. Uh, it definitely doesn't seem like something that's going to happen regularly in a campaign. It is maybe that epic crescendo when a, a climax is met. But uh, 
it's definitely an interesting thing. I, yeah, I'm just, I'm not sure about it, to be quite honest. Yeah, well, and the time is another issue that that is something that I'm certainly worried about because you have these units that move together, which that's great that you don't have people running all over the place. But, I, I mean, some of the units, you know, the the regiment units are very military and they move all together as a brick. The skirmisher units can be one square away from each other. <laughs> uh, so that leaves a lot of room. And I think you could spend a long time moving a large unit of skirmishers, you know, like mounted cavalry or, or a group of rampaging gnolls or whatever it is. And then you're right, because they all act and attack differently. Like if you have a regiment that has some spellcasters in it, they can cast spells and then everybody else gets to attack or choose another option or depending on their, you know, their configuration, some can aid, some can attack. So it does get a little complicated. I wonder, and this is not in the rules, but I wonder if it would be cool for them. Like right now, what they're saying is each stand is 10 people. I feel like if you were going to run a battle with 3000 combatants, why not use the same rules and just change the scale? Each stand is 100 people or something like that. Yeah, because that's what people want. They want to reenact the Battle of the Five Armies or whatever. The way it is now, you're just going to have kind of minor skirmishes or you're going to be spending, you know, half an hour per turn. I guess one thing I could comment on there is, I mean, when you think about a large-scale battle versus, you know, say just your PCs going against a couple people, of course, a large-scale combat is going to take much longer to, to actually work through. So I guess you could say that, I mean, it makes sense that it's going to take a little bit longer. I, I don't think it would take, you know, maybe five times as long, but maybe twice as long. It, it, would, it would make sense, in my opinion. What do you think about the rules for isolation? That if a stand, a solo, or a PC are caught you know, away from the rest of their group that they suffer all of these penalties. It's funny, I was thinking about it and I was like, oh, this is really cool for a PC or for a stand that's caught alone. But I, like for a big dragon or the Tarrasque or something, I feel like I would want that dragon to be able to stand up to an army the way it would anybody else. Uh, but did you guys feel the same way? Let's go around the table and, and talk about these isolation rules a little bit. Uh, Rudy, what'd you think? Uh, I'm not crazy about them. I can understand the bulk of your army needing to be together, but I wish there was a third type of unit that can just like ambusher or something that they mentioned the high tactics. I wish that it was like someone really dependent on that. that can run around and flank and cause a lot of issues. I think that would have added a lot of strategy to it. Um, but as it is, it's going to be a lot of, posturing i feel like <laughs> uh which is very realistic of like uh, a napoleonic battle or something like that you know your skirmishers go out they fight the other skirmishers everybody comes back and then you just shoot each other or fight each other mm -hmm. um but it, it doesn't add as much on a strategic level uh, allison what did you think of the isolation rules I totally agree with, with how it can seem difficult. Um, if something becomes isolated, it can be taken down really fast. Like there are huge penalties for being isolated. And I feel like there is the issue of there's some, there's something lacking with not having some other type of, of unit that is there, like a, you know, the assassin striker type group that, that should kind of work on their own and not be in, in huge units. Um, so I think there 
could be some changes there to make it a little less completely deadly for being isolated because I feel like if if there's so many taken down around you, well, uh, it could get really tricky really fast to get back with a group so you're not taken out immediately if you're isolated. Alex Basso, same question. What did you think of the isolation rules? Uh, I mean, I actually really like them. I mean, like I said earlier, it kind of makes me think of like flanking and it also adds like an objective for combat. You know, you want to target the unit that, um, you know, you you kill a key unit and then you break up the formation and suddenly everybody's isolated. So it's a little more tactical depth, but I I am, I'm going to agree with, you know, some of the points earlier. I feel like they do need a couple more uh, unit types. Uh, you know, one for like maybe giant beasts that don't rely on uh, formations, so they don't care about isolation. And also, like we already said, some sort of ambush unit, like special forces unit that can kind of operate more on their own. Um, but I think that's one of like the beauty of this rule so far. Like they can easily add that in the future. Um, you know, right now you just have regiment skirmishers solo. Um, you know, they can if this is popular, it won't be a problem to add more unit types. Yeah, and I think you're right. Maybe they are going to expand on it depending on the popularity. But I think for in order for it to be popular, the game also has to work at the beginning. So it'll be interesting to see because there are so many variables right now. And obviously they're trying to keep it as close to regular D&D combat as possible, which I really appreciate. Let's talk about some of the differences, right? We keep talking about those two unit types, Skirmisher and regiment so the skirmisher um has a lot of advantages they can be a little more spread out they in general have higher initiative modifiers uh they can use the hide action uh, allies can move through their spaces because they're more spread out they can move take an action and then move again um you know so they really are like marauders running through and and you know messing with things or or flyby attacks and that kind of stuff um whereas the regiments are more you know they're a military unit they have a lower initiative modifier uh allied units can't pass through them they have these actions where they can configure and these configurations are things like aid where you know half the unit aids the attacks of the others so they gain advantage and they have this defend action where all the stands gain a bonus to ac or they have a march uh where you know they move at full speed because if they're in one of the other configurations they only move at half speed um so you know it was interesting to see these and it was cool that the regimens get these uh different configurations i wonder though that the skirmishers already have so many advantages that it's like i'll just make all my units skirmishing units because that's way better alex basso what do you think oh man that's tough like i feel like some of the bonus the the regiments get are really uh really strong but at the same time like if you can't actually effectively attack the skirmishers then yeah it's gonna be a problem i mean it's really something that (laughs) i hate to say it again but like i I need to get my hands on to give it a shot. Um, trying to think if I can poke any holes in it, but it's all like theory crafting at this point, you know. Like it didn't. Like it seems to you that it kind of jumped off as skirmishers are going to be more powerful, right? Is that kind of how you read it? Like it didn't. It didn't kind of read that way to me. I didn't think that these skirmishers are going to have these massive advantages, and there's no reason not to, you know, make everyone skirmishers. Well, I did think that because there's also this, uh, you know, different leaders. So different solo creatures can join a unit and become their commander. And a lot of the commander actions that a commander can take, you know, they can 
have a unit gain advantage on all saving throws. They can have a, you know, a unit gain advantage on all its attack rolls until the end of the turn. Uh, it can rally troops to, who have failed a morale check to resume fighting. Like, it seems like having a commander uh, attached to a skirmisher unit is a super powerful thing as opposed to the regiment configurations. Yeah, but how many commanders are you going to have in a battle? Eight is so great. <laughs> in the regiment and you can i'm just sorry that's the one that jumped out as me as a commander as well is the one that gives advantage on attacks mm-hmm. uh that's probably what i'd be doing a lot with my commander on my skirmishers and i can do that with uh, my regiment without needing uh, a commander the aid configuration right grants a bonus to attack rolls, but half your stands have to use the aid action whereas if a commander is attached all the stands get <laughs> advantage, you know? Um, half of them aren't using eight. Oh, yeah, you know, that's something I've actually... I, I keep thinking that the commander actions are going to be stand only, but, yeah, having them affect a whole unit is definitely a uh, huge advantage. Especially, like, if you have a mat... Like, is there a size limit on units? No. Like, why not just make a unit of, like, 20, and then your commander is going to, you know, put the most charismatic person you have as the commander, and they'll always have advantage. <laughs> And the other thing is that it's a bonus action for the commander, yeah. uh, which is ridiculous because configure takes the action of everybody in the stand to change your configuration. You know, but, but again, you can start yeah, in you aid, could, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. You could start in aid, and uh, you know that may be awesome, especially if they have reach weapons. If you have a, a reach of ten feet or greater, you make a bonus attack. Allison, what do you think about? these uh different units so i guess the way i am i'm reading it and seeing it is like with skirmishers they would be like your your spell snipers that you know they move in they cast their spells and do some damage and then get out and then your regiments are the people that are there to protect them to keep those squishy people from dying and that's kind of the way i'm seeing it like they're they're there to aid and defend um if need be whereas skirmishers just get in do all the deeps and then and then they're gone to to make sure that they're somewhere safe away from the opposing army. So I, I think there's there's a lot there that you can kind of do with them if you figure out how they're interrelated. And then having a solo join one of them definitely changes the way everything goes as well. So it seems a little bit complicated. I feel like I definitely need to, to look into it more to see where each group would stand in terms of a big battle. What's the most optimum way to do it? Uh, the more I think about it, since there's no max unit limit, like why not make your entire army and each stand attacks independently? Your entire army is a skirmishing unit, and you attack your commander to it. Attach your commander to it. Game over. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, I mean, one thing I, I, I just I'm reading more about the rules is I don't really get why these regiment configurations have disadvantages to them. I feel like you already have enough of a disadvantage in being a regiment anyway. Yeah. Why make it move at half speed? You know, with defend and aid. Uh, I mean, again, you know, we got to get our hands on it, but uh, maybe you are pointing out some things that, uh, you know, we'll have to take uh, some sp- more extra time looking at, James. People should definitely go through because we don't have time to go through everything one by one. But I do want to talk about one more thing, which is the end of round. So at the end of round, you do things a little differently than normal D&D combat. Um, you eliminate any casualties. One round is actually a minute of you know, in fantasy world time. 
if a stand drops to zero hit points, they still get to take their turn. And then at the end of the round, they're removed from the battlefield. And then there are also these rules for checking morale. Let's start with you, Allison. What do you think about the end of round rules? So as someone who tends to play support type characters, I like these these check morale rules just because the DC is, is pretty low. So that's kind of nice. Um, there's a good chance that you're going to kind of rally your troops and make sure that your your ranks aren't broken. Um, so I definitely like those. Um, the, the other rent, end of round rules, eliminating casualties and eliminating a solo, are pretty interesting. I noticed that it said uh, you'd make up to 10 death saves at the end of the round, um, one at a time for the solos before they get eliminated. And I thought that was interesting. And the definitely kind of scary because you have so many chances to either save yourself or die um so that's always worrisome especially if you know it's your your pc making all these death saves after a big battle you could think you're alive and then fail a bunch of checks and then your character is just gone so that's kind of scary to think about especially for those of us who get a little bit attached to their characters but it's, it's interesting how they chose to eliminate people, um, make them casualties at the end, and have them removed. So yeah. I like these these rules. Yeah, yeah, I, I dig these too. Uh, what about you, Rudy? You dig these? Uh, yeah, I like it. I love that uh, the first sentence under check morale is, few soldiers want to die. Like, <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> Probably Many all of them don't want to die, but yeah. you know. Yeah, that's, that's what I assumed as well. I love the morale. I know that was a big thing in very early editions of Dungeons and Dragons is like henchman morale check. So I liked that that's back. It works for a war game. It's, I would say, essential for like a melee combat based uh, war game. I like that the, the casualties stay on the field too. Because if you have three regiments in a row and you kill the middle one and you take them off the board in combat, then those other two regiments are isolated. So by. Uh, waiting to the end. No one can ever be isolated uh, when it's not their turn. Yeah. Like, they'll have the chance to fix that before uh, the penalties really can take effect. What did you think, Alex? I mean, I really like the morale mechanic. I think that's that's neat and a nice thing to add. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I like the ability to replace, you know, as a, as a unit is removed, you get the ability to move an allied stand uh, that's adjacent to replace it. To kind of, you know, mimic, uh, you know, the, like the effect of, you know, more guys coming from the back. Reinforcements? Reinforcements. That's the word I was looking for. Yeah. Or reserves. Huh? I keep thinking, this just keeps thinking of, I watched Rome not that long ago, so all I'm thinking about so is good. centurions and yeah. legionnaires and whatever. And having a nice organized front line and everybody taking their 30 seconds or whatever, they're moving back. Rome. So I want regiments to be worked, James, and you've really rattled me by talking about how great skirmishers are going to be. <laughs> well, I guess we will find out in the battle system brawl, which will be coming soon. <laughs> God, really? Yes, right, really. Um, I already mentioned earlier, this is like war game light, which he kind of said it like that's a bad thing. I'm super <laughs> pumped about that. Because like I said, before I got into D&D, probably like six or seven years ago, I was looking at like Warhammer, and I thought that stuff was awesome until I realized like the most important tool was a ruler. So, <laughs> and uh, a paintbrush. Yeah, this, this seems like a great you know, way for me to check out this awesome you know, large-scale tactical combat, and I'm really excited for it. 
let's move on to our second topic, which are some tweets from Chris Perkins. That's right, we're reporting on two tweets right now. Uh, Chris Perkins, from time to time, takes to Twitter and answers a lot of questions of the fans of D&D. One of the things that he revealed through these Q&As is that the marketing team has a big reveal in the works for content after Princes of the Apocalypse. Uh, I guess not a huge surprise there. We know that there's going to be another big storyline. But uh, one thing I'm hopeful for is that it could be something, you know, Princes of the Apocalypse brings in the elemental evil from Greyhawk is coming over, you know, through through the planes are coming, making their way to the Forgotten Realms. So I think they're opening up other planes, and I think they're going to be on their way uh, somewhere else, possibly. Uh, possibly Eberron. I mean, we've been playtesting some, some Eberron packets, but I want to know, what do you guys think could be a big reveal? Do we think it's just getting hyped up for a new storyline? Do we think that something else is coming along? So I'm I'm excited by this tweet just because I have no idea what it could mean. Um, it, he said he's working on the next seven years of D and D stories. That is a lot of that's a lot of storyline. Um, and I probably have to say that I'm also really hoping that some more information is released at Gen Con just because I'll be there. So I'm hoping that they have some sort of big announcement because I know that they're cutting back on some of their funding going towards different conventions and having big like adventurers league related stuff. But I know they're not cutting back on Gen Con. So I am like kind of crossing my fingers. There's a big announcement about kind of the upcoming storyline after, after this princess of the apocalypse and elemental evil type stuff. So I have high hopes and hopefully Chris Perkins doesn't let us down. <laughs> uh, let's talk to another cool guy going to Gen Con, Rudy Basso. What do you make of these tweets? Marketing group reveal. <gasps> DM support group extended to 12 episodes. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait. Oh, um, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I don't know. I think marketing means that it's not product related, that it's some sort of new marketing campaign. I don't, I don't know. Well, uh, I think the marketing team is working on a big reveal because... But why wouldn't he say we're working? Why would he specify marketing? I think... Uh, yeah, I don't think it's necessarily related to what the R&D team is working on. Interesting. Interesting Ooh. perspective. Yeah, no, that's I had not crossed my mind at all. So, yeah, maybe it is something uh, like... After- Trist! You know, Princess of the Apocalypse. It could be a Drist thing. Maybe it's a Drist TV maybe show. Maybe it's books. Yeah. Oh, maybe. I mean, more, <laughs> more Drist books is not going to be a very big reveal. <laughs> <laughs> we, it would be more shocking if they said there weren't. We're going to kill Drist, and there won't be any. Drist. Oh God. Maybe. Um, <laughs> uh, Alex Bassa, what do you make of all these tweets? Boom movie. Oh. Boom. 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 Uh, I mean, yeah, I guess I'm with Rudy in that I don't know if it's necessarily going to be like another product because it's like, yeah, you is, it, is that a big reveal, them announcing another book or something? Like, we're all expecting that. Uh, I guess maybe the only thing I would see is uh, another setting, like uh, maybe a setting book. I guess yeah. that would probably be the biggest thing uh, to bring up at this point, considering that you know, we have only been in the realms of, so far. Uh, and then when it comes to the story stuff, uh, seven years of story, do they always work in seven year cycles? <laughs> Did they just finish up this stuff from 2008? I know. Um, that's I, very weird that it's such a. I don't think so, because they would have been working on fifth edition at the end of 3.5 if that was the case. So. <laughs> 
just throwing a number out there to show off to the people. <laughs> well, but they are putting out product for the tabletop RPG is coming less frequently than it has in the past. It used to be, you know, at least one new book or something a month. And now, you know, they're, they're taking their time spreading it out. So maybe because they're, they said they're doing two storylines a year, at least for this foreseeable future. Maybe they know what the next 14 stories are going to be. Um, you know, and if they're pulling from older D&D, like Elemental Evil is obviously inspired by the Temple of Elemental Evil Greyhawk line. Like um, maybe the next big reveal is a Ravenloft-esque story or a Tomb of Horrors-esque thing or, you know, something like that. Um, maybe he meant canonically within universe the next seven years. Hmm? Oh, that's true. That would be very Pulling tricky. a fast one on the people. Yeah. Yeah, I, and Chris Perkins, he's a tricky guy like that. Well, guys, that is going to do it for this edition of The Roundtable. Allison Rossi, where can people find you? Um, you can finally find me mostly on Twitter. Um, my Twitter username is AllisonR underscore 91. So that's A-L-L-I-S-O-N-R underscore 91. And you can also find my group streaming on Twitch. We play 3.5 um, Monday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Our Twitch account is Padfoot240, P-A-D-F-O-O-T 240. All right, guys, go check him out. And there's some other people you should check out. Rudy Basso, where can people find you? Hey, you can follow me on Twitter at Rudy Basso. I was recently retweeted by John Hodgman because I am so funny and witty, and he agrees with me. <laughs> so be jealous, Twitter people. Uh, Alex and I also have a podcast with cool guys, Vegas Lancaster and Gregory Blair, called D&D V&G. New episode should be out anytime. James was a guest on that. It's uh, for a 1993 game called Stronghold. Uh, did we like it? <laughs> we- Listen and find out. <laughs> uh, one more thing. Alex and I have a YouTube channel where we take video games we play and comment on them. Uh, it's currently called Game O'Clock, but we think that's a tem- yeah, yeah, temporary name. We're currently probably going to change it to Jarito's The Grapefruit Soda, which... uh, Going for a sponsorship deal. Yeah. Alex Basso, where else can people find you? You can find me at Twitter, uh, at yo underscore Alex Basso. All right. Where I don't often tweet, but I swear I'm going to do it one day. I'm going to tweet more. (laughs) You're an egg. And I'm going to change my picture. It's going to be like a nicer egg. (laughs) One day. Ooh, a Fabergé egg. Oh. (laughs) Uh, people, if you have a question or topic you'd like to hear us discuss on the roundtable, reach out to me on Twitter at James Intercasso. That's at J-A-M-E-S-I-N-T-R-O-C-A-S-O. Or you can leave us a comment on the Tome Show's website, thetomeshow.com, or you can reach out to Allison, Rudy, or Alex in any of the ways they have expressed you may reach out to them. And a quick shameless plug for me, check out my blog, which is all about Exploration Age. It's the fifth edition world that I am building. It's over at worldbuilderblog.me. Okay, everyone, thanks for listening, and thanks to Allison, Rudy, and Alex. Many thanks to Jeff Greiner for letting us join the Tome Show lineup, and to Sam Dillon for getting the podcast out there on the airwaves. Our theme music, which you're listening to right now, was composed by Eric Michaels. Don't forget to go to thetomeshow.com and use the affiliate links whenever you shop on Amazon or D&D Classics to help support the show. And if you like the show, please rate the Tome Show on iTunes and like us on Facebook. 
Keep on rolling and keep on listening to The Roundtable.